Let's pray and let's get started. Okay. Father, we're grateful that the storm was not that serious. We commend any of our group who may be traveling right now to your care and protection. Please bring them here safely. Please, Father, bless us tonight with a growing knowledge of you and your ways. May your spirit be our teacher. May he preserve unity and peace among us and do his work to draw us closer to you and to make us more like your son. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, the attendance roster is going around. Please fill it in. Tonight we're going to deal with the topics of transmission and translation in the Bible. And I forgot my AC adapter, so my computer may die in the middle of tonight, but we'll manage. Alright? Alright, when we're talking about the transmission of the Bible, we're talking about the process by which what was written on the autographs got to us. And it's a very interesting and important issue. How did the copies of the autographs get passed down to us? Everybody knows what the autographs are, right? As far as we know, we don't have any of the autographs. Someday one might show up. I kind of doubt it, but as far as we know, we don't have any of them. Okay. The basic answer is that they were copied by hand over and over and over for centuries. Okay? For the Old Testament, that would mean the earliest books of the Old Testament were written around 1400 B.C. Printing started in around the 1500s A.D. So that's 3,000 years of making hand copies. All right? Now, we have existing hand copies from around 900 A.D., so between 900 A.D. and the time of Gutenberg, it would be very easy to check the accuracy, and that has been done, and there was nothing lost in that time period. But going back farther than that, for the Old Testament, we don't have any older copies. We'll talk about the New Testament copies in a little while. How was the process of making the copies of the autographs carried out? Well, it was quite different for the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is just an overview here. Wouldn't we expect a lot of errors to have crept in during the process of copying? And I guess the answer is yes, we would expect this, but the evidence indicates that for the Old Testament, the errors were extremely few, and for the New Testament, the errors were more frequent, but they're easier to identify and correct. So let's look, look at some of the details. Let's talk about the transmission of the Old Testament. Yes. Okay. If that's anybody's here, light brown Buick. Okay. Thank you, honey. Uh, that's probably yours, but okay. Oh, the interior light. That should be okay. That should be okay. Thank you. All right. The Old Testament autographs were copied by hand for centuries, in some cases millennia, and were specially trained scribes who followed special procedures. 
their procedures were incredible. Okay? The people who did this trained their entire lives to do it. They had to wear special clothes. They had to wash their hands in a special way. They could only use one kind of ink that was specially prepared. When they copied, they were never allowed to copy by having somebody read and then having them write it down. Okay? They always had the exemplar in front of them. Furthermore, when they made a copy, the number of letters on each line of the copy were exactly the same as the number of letters on each line of the exemplar. The same number of lines on a section of the writing material was used in each case. After they went through and wrote a line, they would add up the numbers corresponding to the letters. So the first letter of the alphabet had a 1, the second had a 2. They'd go through, they'd add up the sum in the exemplar, and then they'd compare it to the copy that they were making. And at the end of a section, then they would add them all up and compare the sum for all of them. Okay? It was very complex and very carefully done, and they did an extraordinarily good job. Okay? That's kind of analogous to... It's like a checksum, right? Yeah, a checksum. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They were, they were actually doing a digital thing, if you want to think of it that way. Okay. Que second question, do we have any basis to be confident in the, in the accuracy of the Old Testament copies? Well, we really do. Not only do we know the process that they use that I just described to you, but we have been able to compare the Masoretic text. I'll explain that with you which goes up to about A.D. 1000 with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are from before the time of Christ. Let me talk about this a little bit. We, we may have talked about this before, did we? A bit? Well, let me go over it again, okay? The Dead Sea Scrolls were copies of the Old Testament books that were hidden in the desert in Judea. Exactly why they were hidden, we're not sure, but we think that they were hidden at a time of persecution when the Jews were afraid the scriptures would be destroyed. Those copies of various books were found starting in 1948. They have been identified regarding their age as being from before the time of Christ, some of them going back as far as 250 B.C., some as late as perhaps 50 B.C., you can tell the age by the style of writing and the materials upon which they were written. Comparing those copies with copies that the Masoretes had made a thousand years later, 1,200 years later, around 1,000 A.D., they compare those two, and there are virtually no differences between them. Now, what that tells us is that between around 200 B.C., and 1000 AD, in the process of copy, 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 there were virtually no errors introduced into the text. Now that was being done by people for whom Hebrew was not their native language, okay? They were the best experts on the planet in Hebrew, but it's not what they spoke in their everyday lives. If they could do that good a job in that interval of time, then we have every reason to believe that in the interval before the Dead Sea Scrolls, going back to the time of the autographs, which in some cases was only a couple hundred years, 
okay, like the book of Malachi, that's 400 B.C., Dead Sea Scrolls, 200 B.C. Um, for the Pentateuch, it's about 1,200 years, okay? If people working between the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretes could do such a good job with a language that was a dead language to them, we have every reason to be confident that from the time before that, going back to the autographs, however long it was for each book, they did at least as good a job. Okay? So we have really strong confidence regarding the reliability of the copies of the Old Testament. Do we know typically what the space of time between copies was? So like a generation of years? Or it was probably longer than that. Um, you know, I don't know the exact answer to that, but I'm pretty sure a copy would typically be in use probably for many decades. And the books, the books were very carefully preserved. They were kept in, you know, airtight chests whenever possible. They were always under the supervision of a rabbi or something like that. Um, and it's interesting. They would actually bury a manuscript like you would bury a person when it was damaged enough from use that it wasn't useful or reliable anymore. Okay, So they treated them with a great deal of respect. Now the New Testament was a little bit different. How are those copies produced? Well, the answer is they were copied by whomever felt the need for a copy. By the time we get to the New Testament era, we're in a time when literacy is more common than it was in the Old Testament era. Greek was well known. There were some organized efforts to make copies, but the process of making copies was not under the supervision of a special group of scribes like it was for the Jews. Okay? Among the Jews, only the scribes were allowed to do it. Okay? When the New Testament was written, there was not some centralized body controlling this because you got people in the Christian church all over the place. You got some in Rome, you got some in Antioch, you got some in Judea, you got some over in Corinth. They're in many different places and books are being sent to different places. So it was not a centralized process. Sorry about that. Um, on the other hand, we can say that the New Testament copiers were working in their own language for several centuries. So they would be less likely to make accidental mistakes in copying because they knew the language. Okay? Now, what's our basis for being confident in the accuracy of the New Testament copies? Well, we do have a basis, but the reasons are different. We have at least 5,300 copies of the New Testament in whole or in part. That's a lot. Now, in that large number, we have every reason to be statistically confident that the correct reading is present, although there may be errors in some of those manuscripts. In fact, probably every manuscript has some errors. Now, I'm going to start throwing numbers at you, and when I throw them at you at first, you're going to say, that's terrible. But slow down and think about it, okay? There are 200,000 variants in the 5,300 copies. Okay? A variant is a place where one text... Well, let me see. Let me put it this way. 
if you put all 5,300 texts on the table and you went through all of them, if you found at least one manuscript that was different than the others in a particular place, that's called a variant. Okay? There are 200, sorry about this, my computer keeps trying to go to sleep. There are 200,000 variants, but those 200,000 variants are only in 10,000 places. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, let me clarify. Let's say we're looking at John 3.16. I'm just making this up. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And let's say in some manuscripts it uses one Greek word for gave and another manuscript it uses another Greek word for gave. Okay? That's one place where there could be a variant. Okay? There are only 10,000 places in the New Testament where there are variants, period. Now, if you look at how long the New Testament is and you think how many verses in it, that's really not a whole lot of places. Okay? The vast number of those variants have to do with things like spelling and word order in such a way that the spelling does not leave any doubt as to what's there, okay? And the word order is simply a variation that Greek allows but doesn't change the meaning. All right? So what we've got left, there are probably 400 that can affect the sense of the text. Now let me tell you one that you're probably all familiar with. Have you noticed in your Bibles, in some, time, some places it says yours, and you may have a footnote that says other manuscripts say ours. Have you noticed that? Okay. The difference in Greek between those two endings is just one letter. Okay? And that's one of the common variants that you see fairly often. Okay? And I'm not aware of any of the cases where that really changes the sense of the text or it has any doctrinal, you know, has any doctrinal significance. Of the 400 that do affect the sense, there are probably 50 that have some bearing on what the text is saying. None of those changes any fundamental doctrine. None of them leads to heresy or anything like that. Okay? Now, there is a process. I don't know what I did here. I left something out. Um, there is a process by which you can compare the manuscripts and come up with a good idea of what the correct reading is in a given place. That's called textual criticism. We called it lower criticism earlier in the course. Remember that? I'm not going to go into the details of that. It's a very technical business. Um, not everybody agrees how it should be done, but the fact of the matter is that even if we don't do it, there really isn't much to be afraid of, okay? The manuscripts are very reliable, and the differences that are there, there's only 400 of them that in any way affect the sense, and only 50 of those have any significance. So, I hope you'll take my word, and I haven't checked all 200,000 variants, believe me. We probably looked at 100 of them in seminary. But you look at them and you start to get the feel and you can see that they're not major things. Um, we have reason to be confident of the reliability of the New Testament. Now, I did something wrong putting this slide together, but let me get the data up here. If you compare the New Testament with other ancient documents, 
the closest thing that we have to the New Testament in terms of the number of copies is the Iliad. We have 5,300 copies of the New Testament in part or in full. We have 643 copies of the Iliad. And the Iliad was essentially a sacred text. Okay? It was viewed in, by, by the Greek word, world as being just as significant to them as the Old Testament was to the Jews. In the New Testament, we've got 50 lines that are in doubt regarding their meaning. Okay? In the Iliad, there are 760 lines that are in doubt. Okay? Um, now, what, is, what does this lead us to conclude? Although there are more errors in the existing New Testament copies than in, in the Old Testament copies, the places where those errors occur are few. Most of them concern spelling, grammar, and word order. And I've already said to you the rest of what's written up here. Okay? Now, when you're reading your Bible, have you noticed that there are times when there'll be a footnote and it will say some manuscripts say this or some manuscripts have a few extra words or something like that, okay? Those are variants. Those are textual variants. And what they're telling you is that in that particular case, there are enough representatives of two different readings that it's important enough that you know that there are two different readings. Okay, I don't think you'll ever find one of those footnotes where the difference between the two readings is so significant that it's going to change anything that you conclude doctrinally in your reading of Scripture. But those are textual variants. Okay? Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about how the different translations handle those variants. Okay? Now, let's, let's just look at a few textual variants. In the Old Testament, Zechariah 12.10, in the Masoretic text, that's what MT stands for, the Masoretic text is the one that was copied by the Masoretes that went all the way up to 1000 AD. Okay, that's what most of our Old Testaments are based on. And the LXX is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They both say, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now, some guy named Theodosian who lived around 180 A.D. and the, the Apostle John in John 19.37 quotes that and he says, when they look upon him whom they have pierced. Now, you can see there's not much of a difference, is there? Oh, stop that. This is really behaving badly tonight. That was good. Okay. The difference isn't huge. Okay? Now, some people would say, well, John must have been quoting from a copy of the Old Testament that had a different reading because you've got that word when there. Maybe he was. Or maybe he threw in an extra word there to make it read more smoothly when he made the quotation. Okay? But that's an example of an Old Testament textual variant. There really aren't very many of them. Now, this is one that gets a few people upset. The Masoretic text in Exodus 1.5 says that 70 people went down to Egypt as a result of the famine. 
the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Stephen's speech in Acts 7.14, says that 75 people went down. Okay? Now, this is a little complicated because we think that the Septuagint is a translation of the Old Testament texts, but it agrees with the New Testament. Now, there's, there are a few ways in which this could have happened. It could be that when the Septuagint translators translated from Hebrew into Greek, they got the numbers wrong, and then Stephen studied the Septuagint, and he took the number that was there. Okay? That's one way it could have happened. You might say, does that bring our doctrine of inerrancy into question? Okay? And I suppose we could weasel out of that by saying, no, Stephen quoted the, what he thought was the correct reading of the Old Testament correctly, and the New Testament correctly records what he thought. Okay? You could play that game. And I think that game would work. It's not terribly satisfying. Okay? Another possibility is that we have a textual variant in the New Testament that it originally was 75, and somebody corrected the Septuagint to match the New Testament. Okay? That's another possibility. Another explanation, here we go again, another explanation is that Stephen meant to say 75, and he knew it was different than what the Masoretic text included because he was not quoting the Masoretic text and he was including people that weren't listed in the group that went down to Egypt. Okay? And that's probably the right explanation. And then we would argue that the Septuagint was modified to match what he said. Okay? I don't remember exactly how it goes, but people have argued that Stephen was counting... Um, does anybody remember who it was? There were, there were five other people that weren't listed that did go down. I can't remember how it goes. But if this is the biggest problem we have with the Old Testament, okay, you can see that it's very small. And really, there are very few variants in the Old Testament. Most of them concern numbers. And Hebrew numbers are a little tricky. They would represent numbers using letters. And there are still scholars debating on how those letters should be understood when used to express numbers. Okay, we don't know everything about the Hebrew language. Okay, New Testament textual variants. All right, let me explain these abbreviations here. TR, NU, and MT. Now, this is a little confusing. MT, when you're talking about the Old Testament, is the Masoretic text. Okay, that's the Hebrew text that was copied and copied and copied and goes all the way up to 1000 AD. Okay? When we're talking about New Testament manuscripts, where's my mouse? Come on. MT means majority text. We're talking about Greek manuscripts here. I'll explain what that is in a minute. TR means textus receptus, which is Latin for received text. And NU means the Nessel UBS text. Let me try to explain these to you. And if you if if you 
don't feel like you have to remember this, but it'll be good for you to at least get familiar with it. Okay? The vast majority of those 5,300 manuscripts that we have today are very, very similar to each other. They agree in almost every way. They are called the majority text. Okay? There is a particular text family, and that's another group of texts that kind of look like each other. It's called the Textus Receptus. The Textus Receptus is very similar to the majority text, but it varies in a few characteristic ways. There is one other group of texts called the NU texts. There are probably ten manuscripts in the family of the NU text. Okay? Now let me see how I can best explain this. The oldest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, complete manuscripts, fall in this group. Okay? And they tend to have certain variants. Okay? They tend to be like each other. Because they are the oldest manuscripts that we have, many Greek scholars consider them to be the most reliable because you would think off the top of your head that the oldest manuscripts would reflect fewer errors in the process of transmission. So if they're older, they're probably better. Now, frankly, I don't think that is true. Let me tell you why. These manuscripts were not found until, I think, the last 120 years, probably. They were found hidden away in some monasteries in a scriptorium, which is a room where they store biblical texts. They hadn't been used for 1,700 years. Okay? Now, you have to ask yourself, why were they hidden away? Now, the people who think that they are the best texts because they're the oldest say, well, it just happened to be an accident that they were hidden away and we found them and it's a great find and now we've got a text that's really old and really reliable. Other people like me think that those texts were hidden away because somebody had actually intentionally made modifications in them and the church recognized that somebody had made intentional modifications and said, we're taking those out of circulation and they put them away in the back room with the intention of scraping the material off and using the writing material again. Okay? There's a debate going on as to which of those two explanations is correct. Personally, I think the MT is more reliable than the NU text. But again, we're talking about very few variants, very few disagreements. Okay? If you have an NIV, how many of you use the NIV? Okay. You know, you get a footnote that will say, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not have this. Okay. The manuscripts that they're talking about are the NU manuscripts. They are the oldest. Personally, I don't think they are the most reliable. Okay. But what they're telling you is that they generally base their translation on these texts. Now, you know how rarely that you see that footnote in your NIV, right? It's not there a lot, but it's there from time to time. The fact that you don't see it a lot is telling you that there aren't a lot of variants in the New Testament that have significance. Okay? 
So we've got the Textus Receptus, the Majority Text, and the NU Text. Now, in this particular case, Gary. Something real quick. Yeah. I was looking at my footnotes that had to do with the doxology at the end of Romans. Okay. And it said there were five, we call it situations, in the um, tradition of the MS Text. MS? MS. And I just wondered if that was something that. MS text. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the MS text is. No, did it say MS? Five ma- oh, five MS means five manuscripts. Okay. Okay. All right. Let, well, let's let's talk about that quickly because um, that's a good illustration. Let me just put this to sleep and save my battery. Um, go ahead. Okay. In the book of Romans. The ending of Romans in some manuscripts is shuffled and in some manuscripts the personal greeting section isn't there. Okay? When it says five manuscripts don't have this or five manuscripts move this something there, they're saying five manuscripts out of those 5,300 manuscripts have it differently. Okay? The ending of Romans is one of the places where we've got shuffled text, okay? The order of materials is moved around in some of the manuscripts, okay? Um, We've got the pericope of the adulterous woman in the Gospel of John, you know, he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. You've all read that, right? And you've seen in a lot of your Bibles it says that many of the manuscripts don't have that. That's one of the few significant (coughs) textual variance in the New Testament. It's significant because it's a whole big chunk of text. Okay, and some manuscripts just don't have it. In fact, most manuscripts don't have it. Okay? I have a quick question. Yes. Um, It was about your comment that you made about the older manuscripts in you. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I have a uh, I read the New King James most of the time. Yeah. Uh, that was the the Textus Receptus. Well, New King James is, yeah, it's based on the TR and the MT. Okay. Well, there's like, for instance, there's a uh, proof text for the Trinity in... In 1 John chapter 5. And yeah. that one, you know, doesn't it refer back to the NU and say, oh, well, the NU doesn't have this? Yes. Now... My question to you is: I, I've always heard the same thing that you're that you're saying may not be true. Is that you know the the earliest manuscripts may not be the most accurate? Is what you're saying? Now, is there historical evidence that that's what they used to do? They used to you know scrape the stuff off and use the paper. Or? Oh, there is. There is evidence for that. I think I've got that one up here, and we'll talk about it. Okay. okay? Um, come on, wake up. Because that one's like a huge. Yeah, well, well, it's a, it's a huge text in the sense of some of the manuscripts have it and some of them don't. But you know what? If it's not authentic, there's nothing lost because the doctrine of the Trinity is supported. Well, that's, that's true, but I mean, like, if I'm going to use that, like, I've used that to to defend, sure. you know, my my belief in the Trinity, mm-hmm. like, to the Jehovah's Witness, mm-hmm. and then they'll just be like, oh, that's not even, you know, it's like it's thrown out almost. Okay, well. Let's go through these, and then I'll comment on that, because um, that's an important issue. Okay? Well, that, that's the first one I've got up here. Okay? 1 John 5, 7. The Textus Receptus has the line, for there are three that bear 
record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear... Oh, why is this happening? Three that bear witness on earth. I don't know why this um, network wants me. Hang on a second. I'm just going to turn off my network. Okay. There we go. Okay. The NU text and the MT only have, for there are three that bear witness. They, they don't have this all the way down to this. Okay? Everything, there are, for there are three, okay? For there are three, and then three that, and then we got, then we have bear witness. Okay? That's all that the NU and the Masoretic text, the text have, the Textus Receptus has this long thing. Okay? Now that particular textual variant is a very interesting one because we don't have any manuscript older than around 900 A.D. that has that text, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, and 900 A.D. is 800 years after the New Testament was written. It doesn't appear in the Masoretic text. It doesn't appear in the N.U. text. It just sort of comes out of nowhere in the in the history of the text that we've got somewhere like 800 years after the New Testament was written. Most scholars believe that this was inserted by somebody in order to add a clearer attestation to the doctrine of the Trinity and that it's not original. Okay? There are some who have argued somewhat convincingly that that isn't the case and that somebody actually took it out early and then it was recovered so that it is original. I do not know what the answer is. Okay? All I will say is this. I wouldn't base your defense of the doctrine of the Trinity on this simply because there is some doubt. And I would also say that without this verse, our doctrine of the Trinity is not in any trouble at all, is it? Now, our doctrine of the Trinity is a trinity that is derived from inductive study of the scriptures. And we'll look at this in our next course, but you basically see that in the, in the text of scripture, God the Father is called God and is described as having the qualities of God, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, all the things that God can do. The Son is described in that way and the Holy Spirit is described in that way. So they all have all the qualities of divinity, they're all present in, or active in certain places in the scripture, like the baptism of Jesus, and they're all called God. Okay? So, our doctrine of the Trinity doesn't come from that verse that keeps disappearing. Okay? And so, I think the safest thing to do is to just say, we're not sure if that is original, but there's nothing lost if it isn't. And by the way, this doesn't teach anything that's contrary to the doctrine of the Trinity at all, does it? Okay? If it's original, it's redundancy. Praise God. If it's not original, we don't have to have it because the doctrine is supported adequately elsewhere. And I think that's the smart, smartest way to handle it. Now, in Luke 11:12, you notice that the TR and the MT are in agreement. 
They say, Our Father, which art in heaven, and the NU text just says, Father, hallowed be thy name. Okay? Slightly different, but there's no doctrinal problem with either one, is there? The prayer is a little bit different. Not a big deal. Down here in John 7, we have the the story of the adulterous woman, the woman caught in adultery, whom they bring to Jesus. This does not appear in any manuscripts until the 6th century A.D. It's not present in the NU text at all. Again, I'm not sure whether it's original or not. There's not, there's not, I'll take it in a minute. There's nothing in that story that's doctrinally difficult, nor is there any, anything in that story that supports a doctrine that couldn't be supported if it wasn't there, if it's not original. Bob? So it's not in the, the majority text either? Um, I don't think it is, actually. I'd have to check. I don't know why I didn't put it there. Somebody who's got the uh, New King James could look it up and see what the footnote says. Okay? Uh, John 7:58. Okay. Okay, what I am saying is the, sto- the story of the adulterous woman in John 7:58 to 8:11 does not appear in the NU text. It does appear in the Textus Receptus, but not in any manuscript older than about 600 AD. Okay? Most scholars would say that that's not an authentic part of Scripture. They would say that it was added by somebody. So that whole section? That whole section, yes. And it's like 12 verses or something. What does it say? What is, is there a footnote? It says, The words and everyone who sinned no more, 811, erected by the new text, as not original. They are present in over 900 manuscripts. Okay. Did you hear that? They're present in over 900 manuscripts. Those are later manuscripts, however. Now, when we say later, we mean copies that were made later. The, the question always is, are those later copies reflecting earlier copies from which they were made? And since we don't have, we don't have an unbroken string of manuscripts, right? We've just got a lot of manuscripts and we really don't know what the sequence was in which they were copied. So when we run into something like this, we have to make an intelligent guess. And that's the best that it is. Okay? But these two are undoubtedly the two most important textual variants in the entire New Testament. And you know what? They're not that important. Okay? If this verse isn't authentic and if the story of the adulterous woman isn't authentic have we lost anything we can't live without I don't think so Bob well they're included because they appear in enough manuscripts to raise the question of their uh, of the to raise the possibility that they're authentic Well, okay. Um, That probably has to do with the tradition of um, textual criticism. When the first English Bibles were being made, 
the Texas Receptus was the text that was most commonly used, and those were in there. Okay, so when scholars later came along and they started looking at these other texts, like the NU, then they began to question whether those things were authentic. So rather than yanking them out and putting them in footnotes, they left them in and bracketed them to let people know. Okay, it, it's it's a translator's option, you know. Uh, well, maybe it's 53. I may have copied it wrong. <laughs> Textual variant, see. The first, Leslie. The, the first phrase, you're talking about the three. This one up here? Yeah. Yeah. The, in this one, it says, uh, and the spirit is the witness, because the spirit is the truth. There are three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the first verse in Let's see. I wonder if I copied it wrong. Let's see. Yes. Yeah, you know what? I put this up here wrong. Okay? What's in your Bibles is definitely correct. I plugged <laughs> this up. Okay? Thank you for catching that. All right. Forget about what's here. I, I I didn't do this right, okay? But you can look in your Bibles and see what the variant is. Well, your Bible will tell you which portion of that is in question, okay? Forget about what's up there. I, I can read it to you from my Bible if you want me to, but you can do that on your own, okay? I think I've made a mistake up here. I think I put the wrong part of the text in as the questionable part, okay? Oh, I didn't do a lot of stuff, you know. I make mistakes, okay? And I'll need to straighten that out. But I, I've shown you these simply to show you that although there are a few places where there are significant variants, they're not going to change anything doctrinally, okay? I think, I think what we need to do is we need to recognize that there are a few places in the scriptures where the reading, where we're not certain about the reading, but because God has designed Scripture to be sufficiently redundant, and because we have enough evidence of the process to be highly confident that the errors are very few, then we can trust our Bibles. Okay, and that's what it comes down to. Um, can I ask you a question about sure. one, one particular um, variant? Variant. Uh, in the mark. Yeah. About the snake. Well, that's, 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 that's the other one, the ending of Mark, okay? The NU text cuts off the ending of Mark, I think right after it says, for they were afraid or something they like that. They were afraid and they told nobody. And they told nobody, and it just ends there, okay? It's only a few manuscripts that don't have the ending of Mark, that long section. I think that is a blatantly obvious case where the NU text is messed up, okay? I am absolutely convinced that the long ending of Mark is authentic. And I studied that <coughs> at some length at one time a few years ago, and I think we can trust that ending completely. It doesn't even make sense grammatically. 
where it's cut off and the NU text is in the middle of a Greek sentence where it just doesn't work grammatically. And some people have speculated that what happened was that there was a copy of Mark that was being copied and the guy ran out of space and he attached another piece of writing material and finished it and that got lost. Okay? You can speculate on how it happened, but I think we can be very confident about the ending of Mark. All right. I think I've already said this. After looking at the variants, it should be obvious that they're not matters that affect the message of Scripture seriously. So I think we have every reason to be confident that our modern Bibles are based upon accurate copies of the original autographs. They're not perfect, but I think they are very, very, very accurate. Okay? All right. Now that leads to a question about translations. Give me about five minutes to get through this, and we may pick this up in, in the next hour. There are two basic reasons why translations vary. The first one is there, there's a question of what to translate. Now, that's what we were just talking about. Are you going to take the reading, let's say, of the NU text and translate that, or the reading of the TR and translate that? Now, that's a very minor issue, as we've seen, because the variants aren't very frequent. The second reason is the question of how to translate. Okay, So we've got the question of what text to translate and what method to use when we translate. Okay. In the what to translate area, virtually all modern translations translate the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text that we have in the Old Testament. They will use the, the Septuagint at times for help but they rely almost entirely on the Masoretic text. In the New Text, uh, New Testament, I'm sorry, most modern translations use what's called a critical text. A critical text is a Greek text that is produced by going through all the manuscripts and picking the variants on their own merits in each case. So when you have a critical text, you end up with a text that doesn't look like any existing Greek manuscript. It's people's effort to make the best guess at what the correct reading is for all the variants and then putting them together to come up with a complete New Testament. Do you follow me? Okay. A few modern New Testament translations use the TR or the MT text. The most popular of those are the King James Version and the New King James Version. And then there are a few others that are derived from the King James Version. Okay? If you have an NIV, New American Standard, a Net Bible, your New Testament translations are based on a critical text. And the critical text, most of the time, looks a lot like the NU text. Okay. Now there's the question of how to translate. And we'll stop after this slide, but I want to get this out, okay? There are basically three ways to translate. One is a word-for-word -word translation. The translators try as much as possible to translate word-for-word -word and preserve structure and syntax using a one-to-one -one correspondence, a, a mapping this word to that word from Hebrew to English or from Greek to English between the original language and the target language. Now, you can't do that perfectly because there's not always a one-to-one -one 
correspondence. There's not always a word that will do that. And the grammar and structure are not exactly the same. But you can make an effort to be as close as possible. Translations that do that are the King James, the New American Standard, and the New King James. Then there is what's called dynamic equivalence. In dynamic equivalence, the translators make an effort to translate the thoughts rather than the words from the original language to the target language. Now, when I say that, they are to some extent trying to preserve structure and word order. But they're making less effort to do that and more effort to be clear and readable. Okay? Uh, they don't consider word-for-word -word correspondence to be a priority. The NIV is a dynamic equivalence translation. I believe the NET is too, to some extent. Although I, I, I don't speak um, authoritatively on that. I think it is. Now, a paraphrase is like a dynamic equivalence translation, but it goes farther. The translators, effort, the translators really make no effort to retain the original wording, grammar, or syntax, or to translate word for word. Their goal is to convey their understanding of the biblical text to you as a reader. It's like they read it, they digest it, and they say it in their own words in a way that they think reflects each verse. Okay? Paraphrases border on being commentaries rather than translations. Okay? The Living Bible, the New Living Testament, Philip's New Testament, and Modern English are examples of paraphrases. Okay? Um, let me go a little more. I'll still give you your 10-minute break, okay? <laughs> Do you mind? Okay. It's still going to be the same amount of time tonight. Which translation is best? Well, that depends on what you want to accomplish. For ease of reading, dynamic equivalents and paraphrases are very nice. Okay? They're also helpful for people for whom the English language is not their first language because they're easier to understand. Okay? For in-depth Bible study, the kind of stuff that we're trying to do in this class, including word studies, word-for-word -word translations are far, far better. Okay? Remembering that the very words of Scripture are inspired, the closer a translation is to reflecting those original words, the more accurately it's going to, re it's, it, it's going to represent God's inspired word. Okay? And after the break, we'll talk about this a little more. So the answer is the translation that's best to use depends upon your goals. Okay, let's stop here. Um, what we're going to do after the break is compare some translations so you can see how they vary. Okay, let's take a break. Let's start again at 10 minutes of, that's about 12 minutes from now.